listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode is brought to you by orchids. Don't believe the aster hype. With over 28,000 species, orchids are the most abundant flower family. everyone, your host Steve here, and you are listening to Rootbound, the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, and each week I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them, and then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me, and through this process we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now before we meet our guest today, I want to talk about binomial nomenclature. We talk a lot about names in this episode and kind of like the importance of naming things and so i thought i would get to the core of of how we name plants at least in the the culture that i live in and that is using binomial nomenclature so if you don't know what that means that basically just means having two names Uh, i guess people often kind of have binomial nomenclature too if you're not talking about a middle name but anyway uh this system of naming plants um breaks up a name of a specific plant, and this actually applies to animals too and, and fungus. It, it works across all life, but it basically breaks up a specific species into two parts, the genus and then the species. And so uh, a good example, we talked recently uh, on the podcast about violets. Uh, violets are viola odorata. So viola is the genus name and odorata is the species name. And this is a pretty useful um, tool for a number of ways. One, it, it gives some degree of uh, classification of the life form. So the genus groups similar plants or animals uh, together. And so there's different flowers in the viola genus, but the specific one, that's that's why it's the species, it's the specific one, is odoratus vi, uh, viola odorata um, is the genus and the specific epithet, which I like that term epithet. <laughs> it's the is that last part. So it does it does some degree of helping you like group animals. It also does some description. So often the genus has some descript uh, descriptor to it, but then that specific epithet much more often is useful in describing the plant. So in the case of violet, it's uh, odorata which means it has a smell and it's like the one that is known to have a smell and there are other examples they're not always like that sometimes they're just named after people so that's a potential like issue with the way these work um the other thing the reason why binomial nomenclature is very useful and this comes up a lot is because it actually specifically identifies a plant there's a lot of plants out there and we've talked about a bunch of them on the show that end up having the same common name like there's there's three different kinds of sycamores i think uh cedar is kind of all over the place and so if you have that genus and species you can really nail down specifically the plant you're talking about which is very useful now a little bit of history of binomial nomenclature uh, before we meet our guest uh it was invented by this guy carl linnaeus who is like the guy when it comes to plants back in the 1700s and he published this book called the species plantarum uh which had a bunch of plants listed using this method of binomial nomenclature, and it was a pretty big revolution for the time. And in this book, he listed over 5,000 specific 
plants, um, which is quite a bit. So uh, that's a pretty cool history. Now, a little bit of like the problem, I think, with binomial nomenclature is because it's very European-centric, and it's actually, in, you know, for 5,000 plants, it's very like this dude, Carl Linnaeus-specific, and we've talked about this a lot. A lot of the names actually aren't very useful because they're just named after, like, guys he knew or other, like, famous botanists he liked. They're very European-centric, so, like, they don't give any credence to the common name of the plants where they're from if it's not Europe. That said, it is a pretty good system for uniquely identifying a plant and differentiating it from other plants that may share a common name. So um, all in all, it's a pretty cool system. I like it. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I like to talk about the scientific names a lot. And that's the idea, uh, binomial nomenclature. It's pretty cool. Interesting nomenclature. How does it work? Hi, Mignon. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. My plant is the mignonette. It's a flower that I am named after. <laughs> oh, very good. So it's so funny when we were when we were uh, messaging about this, and you mentioned which plant. You're like, I wonder why that's meaningful. And then I was like, Oh yeah, duh, your your name. <laughs> so <laughs> right. The story is that it was my great great grandmother's favorite flower because it smelled so good. And um, then my it was and then it became a family name. So um, there was an aunt, and then my mom had a favorite cousin, who um, tragically died really young. And so my mom named me after her favorite little cousin who died. Oh, what what man! I I swear plants always have these amazing stories that connect families through time. It's something that's come up over and over in the show. It's not something you think about immediately, but it's such a poignant thing with plants. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So you're named after the mignonette, but you, what's the story about why the name is, your name is Mignon and not Mignonette? I, I don't know. That's a great question. It yeah. just got shortened. I think that, I think that all the family, I think that all the women in the family had the et lopped off the end. I think it huh. was Mignon from the beginning, even though the flower is the mignonette. It's funny, I've had people, uh, my, one of my friends had a sort of an obnoxious older sister when I was in high school, and she was taking French and kept telling me that I pronounced my name wrong and that my name was the masculine form of the word. <laughs> we so would act, just, just to like um, make sure we're on the same page, because I know that word, but I actually realize I don't know what it actually means in French. What is the, like I think of a filet mignon, what is Yeah, it means um, cute and small. So a filet mignon is a cute little steak. And a mignonette is an even cuter little flower, I guess, with the et at the end. Yeah, it's a, it yeah. is. It's a tiny white flower. The flowers, the, the plant itself um, isn't a, a very attractive. Um, you know, some of the websites say that it, it looks kind of weedy and it was popular in um, cottage gardens because it has a loose look and that it's really known for its smell and not its beauty. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um, have, you, have, you, have you seen one? Have you, have you, are, I haven't, except pictures. It's it's not incredibly common, um, but I've been wanting to get seeds, and like, getting ready for your show made me really want to plant some. So I think um, after the winter, I will I will get myself some seeds and plant some just to see what it smells like. Actually, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, it, like your name is like traces back to like how good this flower smells. I know. It's kind of weird that I never have seen it, but um, it's apparently used in perfumes, too. Um, perfume websites describe it as having a vibrant green smell. So, so you know, my grandmother loved the smell, and it's apparently is, like, 
used in perfumes. So I thought that was cool. That's so cool. Okay, remind me, so your grandmother was the one who had the name first? Oh, I'm sorry. It was my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Great-great-great-grandmother. Whoa. Okay, so that's cool. And and then she was named because her mother liked the smell of the flower. Mm Mm-hmm. How cool. I feel like... I feel like people aren't naming kids because they like smells as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right? And actually, I learned a really cool thing this morning as I was sort of trying to look up details, is that um, Napoleon was so taken with the scent of the flower when he was in Egypt that he sent seeds to Josephine for her garden, and supposedly she's the one who named it Mignonette de Egypt. Oh, wow. Man, I did not know that uh, uh, Napoleon ha- was such a flower guy, but I learned in an <laughs> episode a couple of days ago that he was also called Corporal Violet and that he also loved violets and always wore a violet in his lapel and that he gave them to his wife every day on her birthday, every birthday. And and wow. and violets became so... I'm repeating something from an episode a few episodes ago, but sorry, audience, <laughs> but he became so associated with the violet that when you know he became deposed it was like not cool to have violets in france anymore oh my gosh <laughs> yeah that's he amazing. ruined the violet for all country <laughs> <laughs> but not the men so, yet yeah, that's good much more of a flower guy than than we realized yeah not not yet you don't think about dictators being flower guys but yeah <laughs> very interesting wow i did not expect that yeah. um so yeah what, what else can we uh, learn about the mignonette um, let's see. Well, the, the, some of the perfume. So, I, you know, if I can't grow the plant, I want to get some, at least smell some of the perfumes that it is in. So it is in Estee Lauder Private Collection Whoa. and the Body Shop's Aqua Lily, supposedly. So, you know, if I can't get my hands on some seeds or it won't grow for me, I have a backup plan. That's interesting. I think that Estee Lauder is one that my mom used to wear, actually. Um, I, You know, for a guy who has a plant podcast... My sense of smell, I feel like, is my weakest sense. I have, a, I've like, I have always had allergies, and so like l- describing smells or like telling the difference between perfumes is something that that I'm not very good at. How about you? How's how's, how's your sense of smell? Yeah, no, my sense of smell is really good, but I have allergies too. I have terrible hay fever. That's probably why. I don't have a lot. I I, when I have a garden, but I grow mostly vegetables. Mm. I am not someone who grows flowers, because because I'm I'm allergic to bee stings, mm. and apparently, um, and actually, the mignonette is a plant that bees like. So like, yay bees! Like I like bees. <laughs> I want them to thrive, but I don't want to get stung. And then um, and then I'm you know I have terrible hay fever, so I'm not out there like smelling the flowers mm-hmm. for fun either usually. So you know I grow. Zucchini and basil. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're not allergic to mignonette. Um, when, yeah. So when you give it a try, that would be a little bit of a, I guess not. That wouldn't be ironic. I guess technically, if I'm speaking with you, I shouldn't use ironic uh, incorrectly. Would that just be coincidental? I guess, or I don't know. What, it would what be would unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. it wouldn't yeah. really be ironic, but yeah. it'd probably be unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, yeah, uh, so I I can so I'm a beekeeper. So anytime people talk about bees, I I uh, uh, I always I always like to to give some sage beekeeper advice. It's a very fun hobby. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who are allergic. A lot of people think they're allergic and they're not necessarily allergic. But so I don't know what your situation is. Um, but but when you get stung by a bee, often swelling happens. But if it's swelling happens in a place other than where you got stung, that's when it's bad news. 
So if you get stung mm-hmm. on the hand and your hand swells up, that's happened to me a million times. I get like baby hands because I get stung by bees all the time. Um, <laughs> um, but if you get stung in the hand and your foot swells up, that's really bad. And you need, you need it. But the, thing, the other thing I'll mention, even if you're allergic or not, bees are super cool. If they're flying around your mignonettes, they're not going to sting you. Okay. They will sting if you go to their hive, which is what beekeepers do. Or mm-hmm. if you step on them, little kids get stung all the time when they get step step on bees because you know they're barefoot or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But people always confuse yellow jackets and bees, and yellow jackets are the ones that will sting you for no reason because they can be real jerks, in the, especially mm-hmm. in the fall. Um, but bees in general, I think if you grow mignonette and, think, and there's bees on, I think you'll be okay because generally oh, they're pretty know. sweet. They don't they don't you know that there's like a a psychology, so to speak, of a bee. Honeybees, unlike most other stinging insects, you know, their stinger comes off when they sting you and they die. So a bee that is um, foraging for nectar, like it was flying around this hypothetical mignonette you might grow next year, um, its only goal is to get that nectar back to the hive. And so if it stings somebody while it's doing that, it it has failed its mission as a bee. So it really does not want to sting unless it's defending the hive and when they're foraging. So that's that's like a little bit of bee psychology. So I do a, a parlor trick when I see a bee, I give it a little pet on the head. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because they really don't care. They really do not want to sting you unless you really back them into a corner. But yeah, yellow jackets, totally opposite. Uh, they're total jerks and, and will sting uh, sometimes randomly, particularly in the fall. Are they attracted to the same plants that attract bees? Um, uh, sometimes. There are, you know, yellow jackets uh, and most wasps are kind of combo nectar and scavengers. So they'll eat, they, they eat nectar, um, but also they'll eat, like, dead bugs. And sometimes you'll have, like, a yellow jacket, like, snip at your burger if you're at a picnic because they will, like, eat meat. So they don't, mm. they're not as, like, specific um, targeters of nectar sources so sometimes you'll have some some combos but it's not it's not quite as much overlap in bees or you know sole nectar and pollen pollen gatherers so um there and they're very yeah. uh, they're very the, the honeybee is amazing it will it will uh it'll forage on any anything they're really they're not very they're generalists when it comes to nectar that's really cool so i learned yeah. something today so the thing that's buzzing around my burger is not a bee Definitely not. Yeah, if maybe so, around your wine, maybe around your soda. No, it's, I'm I'm okay to go. I haven't gone on a bee tangent on the podcast for a while though. So, so, yeah, I have no idea if people are allergic to bees. Are they also allergic to wasps? I you you would have. I don't expect you to actually know this. It, it it yeah. I think um, that's like allergies are so weird. So I think like maybe and maybe not. Right. I think yeah. depending on what you're responding to and all of those. Uh, I forget. I don't know about the yellow jacket, but the the like cocktail of chemicals in a bee sting is like a lot and so what you're actually responding to as an allergy is a little bit tough to say interesting i'm gonna yeah. look into that more yeah anyway that's that's you know i love talking about bees they come up a lot on a plant <laughs> podcast because bees love plants so i bet yeah. yeah um do you have any other fun facts and dazzling details about the mignonette um, just that it was popular in gardens in Elizabeth, Elizabethan and Victorian times. So, you know, really fit into those cottage gardens, those loose, you know, British gardens that you see. Um, that's about it. Very good. Do, do you know where, is it a European plant originally? <laughs> no, it originated in North oh, Africa. You, right. You said that. The, yeah. The, the minion of Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that that's interesting that it adap- adapts well to other environments as well, I guess. Yeah, I guess the other interesting thing is its actual its technical name, the Rezada 
odorata. So the odor it's part of the odorata odorata species. I think it's the species, and it yeah. is this whole this species of plants that are all like strong smelling. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for sharing uh, uh, Mignonette with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Yeah. No. Go ahead. All right. So when you uh, when you uh, mentioned uh, which plant you were going to choosing, I was like, well, is there any plants that are named after me? <laughs> and uh, I'm sad <laughs> to say that there is not a plant named Steve, at least as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, and there's not uh, like there's not like a Stevens Saint Stevens Wart or something, as far as I can tell. But there is a genus of plants that's called Stephania. So that's what I chose, the genus Stephania, which is, and it's also spelled with a PH. I'm a Stephen, my full name is Stephen, uh, go by Steve, but I'm, I'm a PH Stephen. And so the Stephania genus is with a PH. Uh, there is a Stephania genus with an F, but that's a species of frogs. So we're talking <laughs> about the plant um, Stephania with a, with a pH. So yeah, I, I had no clue about this plant whatsoever. So this is one of the things that's like, why is it meaningful to me? It's like, well, I, we share a name, but that's really it. I had no clue until you inspired me to, to, to think, is there a plant named after me? Um, and yes, apparently, well, apparently there is that. Okay, let's get into that, uh, the name. Okay. Stephen, does that, do you, do you know the, the origin of the name Stephen? I do not. So Stephen is derived from Greek Stephanos, which means wreath or crown. Mm -hmm. And I think the most famous Stephen was a a Saint Stephen who was like the original Christian martyr. And I don't know why he was named Stephen. I think he's depicted with a crown a lot. Um, But like, which came first, the Stephen or the crown? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, And then there's a few other famous uh, King Stephens. There was a King Stephen of Hungary and another King Stephen, I forget of where, but I don't know why the crown, like, is it that because these were all guys who had king or leadership or, or did, I don't, I'm not sure why it became a name. The, it's commonly a name now because it's mostly named, you know, people who are of, you know, Christian descent is named after the saint or various other people. I think there's a lot of Stevens in Hungary too, because Istvan, Istvan is the hung, Hungarian version of Stephen um, because there was a famous king. Um, so, huh. but it means crown. And the Stephania genus, it's because the anthers form a crown shape on the flower. And so oh, uh, the, cool. the guy who named it, who is uh, uh, Spencer Le Marchand Moore, named it that because he decided that. Um, actually, maybe that wasn't the one who he found. Audience, if I got the name of the guy who, who, uh, who uh, discovered it wrong. But anyway, whoever discovered it or, or named it thought that the anthers looked like a crown. And so the whole genus is Stephania. Very cool. I, I have a baby in the background, so audience, um, just just uh, <laughs> oh, be aware. I'll try to try to uh, deal with the audio in post here. But yes, and I also have a cat in my lap. It's a whole it's a whole thing here, right oh, now. Nice. Um, I feel like no video call is complete until you see somebody's pet. <laughs> totally, and and Cheeto, the audience will know. Every time I'm on a call, he has to hop in my lap. It's like his thing. Okay, so yeah, the whole genus is called Stephania. Um, they're mostly from Asia and Australia, 
And there are a number of different species within the genus Stefania. Um, but I'm going to talk about mainly two. Um, and they're probably the most common, from what I've Googled, the most, like, well-known. Um, the first one is called Stefania erecta, and that just means upright. Um, mm-hmm. And this one is this one is a pretty, co- I mean, I don't think it's a common houseplant, but in, like, the houseplant world, which people get really, really into houseplants, I'm not I'm not that kind of plant guy. I I'm really bad with houseplants, and these cats really limit the limit the <laughs> the kind of houseplants I can have because they will eat anything, um, anything that's poisonous I don't want to have, and anything that's not poisonous they will eat. So <laughs> it, it's tricky. <laughs> I only have like three houseplants, but uh, in like in like you know hardcore houseplant world, the Stefania is apparently becoming a pretty popular one, and it's because it's the kind of plant that's uh, it's it has a caudex. Which I learned about um, on an episode of a while back uh, when I was talking with a guest about Dioscorea elephantipes, which also has a caudex. And a caudex is this, a, it's a kind of a specially formed root that is above the soil. And it's like a little bulbous root that rests mm-hmm. on the soil. Um, and then the plant comes up out of the caudex. It's C A U D E X. Hmm. Um, and it's it gives it a very interesting look, and the 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 one we talked about the previous epo, the Dioscorea elephantipus, it almost looks like a little turtle because it's like got these facets. Huh. But this Stefania erecta, I found a quote from this uh, plant website called Rooted Hues that said, "Nothing says quote trendy quite like a plant that looks like a fat potato." <laughs> <laughs> and it really does just look like this little potato sitting in a pot with this little vine coming up out of the potato. And uh, it almost, it looks a little bit like if a uh, nasturtium was growing out of a potato is kind of what it looks like. Because the leaves are similar. They're they're not quite as round as a nasturtium. They got a little bit more of a heart shape to them, but a similar pattern. Um, And it is really striking. And so I can see how plant people like it. Um, But from what I've read, I think it is toxic to cats. So I think I unfortunately will not be growing a Stefania, my namesake plant Mm. in my house. Hmm. I actually planted nasturtiums on my porch um, a few months ago for the first time. My neighbor's was coming like over the fence, so I took a clipping and just put it in a pot, and it's gone crazy. It's awesome. so easy to grow. It's I, unbelievable. I haven't grown uh, them for a while, but I we just had a nasturtium episode a few a few weeks ago talking with a um, uh, a guest uh, about nasturtiums, and yeah, they're such cool flowers. They're really really neat. I really love them. I got I got yeah. next next spring. I got to plant some nasturtiums because I really like they're very tasty as well. So beautiful and yeah. tasty. Okay, so that's that's Stefania erecta, um, this houseplant. Uh, the next one, this one, this one's like so fascinating. Like that happens a lot with plants. Like you, I didn't even know about this plant, but I started reading, and there's so many things about this, and I can only scratch the surface, and it gets into some stuff that really I have no like background to really talk about. But it is super fascinating. And the the second one was called Stefania tet- tetrandra. It's hard to say tetrandra, and that is uh, tetra for Andra means is like a botanical word for stamens. So this is four stamens. And I was trying to figure out why it was called that. I was looking at pictures and the stamens are tiny. So like most of the pictures you find can't really like, don't really like see them. But the stamen is that little like, on what what's a great example of a flower with a stamen? It's the little uh, filament that has the dangly uh, anther on it, which is where the male pollen is, right? But they're super, super tiny on this one. But if you look in some pictures very closely, they're they're in groups of four on the little mm. flower head. And so that's why the guy who named it, 
I guess most other Stefanias don't have four stamens. They have some other number. And so that's why he called it the Tetan- St- Stefania Tetrandra. And that was the guy, Spencer Lemarchant Moore, who named it, gave it its, its scientific name. But its history is way longer than that. And, and something that is really hard for me to break down as only an English speaker, because it is a plant that is used in traditional Chinese medicine. And it is apparently one of like the like 50 main plants used. And this is where it gets a little confusing. And I don't know, I'm, you, you know about grammar and words, but I don't know if you have any exposure to the Chinese language, but I don't. <laughs> uh, no. And it gets very complicated. And um, apparently it's, its name in Chinese is Fangji, but then there's a bunch of prefixes that can be applied to it. So I've read Fun Fangji or Han Fangji or Guang Fangji. And in some cases, they actually refer to different plants. And in some cases, they refer to this one, Stefania Tetrandra. And this mm-hmm. is where it gets pretty interesting because uh, Stefania Tetrandra does have tons of um, scientific, uh, you know, current scientific data about the uh, active ingredients of it. And, and there's a, there's one paper I read, which I'll link in the show notes, that's called Tetrandrine. That's the active chemical, the main principal component of, of the uh, alkaloids of this plant. It says tetandrine, a molecule of wide bioactivity. So it it, ha- it does lots of stuff, and there's mm. it gets super complicated and scientific. But apparently, this is one of those things where there's there is lots uh, of scientific evidence to its traditional use in Chinese medicine, and and that stuff gets pretty complicated. And like I, I like to say in a lot of episodes, like. I, I, I don't want to, like, recommend any me- medicinal use of any plant, whether it's traditional Chinese or whatever use, because that's not where I come from. But it, the history is super fascinating, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and reading about, like, you know, uh, uh, a traditional use and, and corroboration with, like, modern science stuff, so it's very fascinating to me. Um, but where the story gets really interesting and, and, and where we talk about the power of a name, which I think has been a theme of this episode, right, of, like, what a name means... And, and what that can do is that um, this traditional name Fangji uh, actually often means two different plants. And the, the name, my understanding is that the name in Chinese refers to often how it is prescribed and used. And so these two plants often get called the same name. And maybe the, that, that prefix I was mentioning is the way that in Chinese they're differentiated. But in common language, Fangji is just used. And that leads to an issue of, I think, people who don't speak Chinese maybe not getting the right thing. And, mm. and, and the most other common Fangji is a, is a plant that has its uh, scientific name, Aristolochia Fangji. So it's got that Fangji, Fangji in the name. Um, but that plant also has use in traditional Chinese medicine, but it's also uh, known to be toxic to a much higher level. We say on the podcast all the time, we co- quote the famous Swiss alchemist Paracelsus that uh, the dose makes the poison. So anything hmm. is toxic in the, in the right dose, right? You know, you drink too much water, that's bad for you. But, but uh, from what I can tell, Stefania Tetandra is really low on toxicity, but the other plant that's called Feng Qi Aristolochia fungi is quite toxic. It has an acid called aristoloic acid, which can cause nephro- nephropathy, which is uh, neuropathy of the liver, and can mm-hmm. be really, really bad. And so I think there were some cases where uh, people who weren't native speakers of Chinese or were like dabbling in traditional Chinese medicine were ordering fungi and getting the wrong plant. 
mm. because they were just that it was the name is and common names do that a lot but in this case there's one other layer of like a language barrier and so there's some people who who got very sick because they were ingesting the wrong plant because they were going off the this traditional name um and so like yeah the difference between those two uh is pretty interesting and yeah and they're they're very different plants right if you look at them if you saw the plant itself you would know they're different but the the main product is the root and so like a a, a bag of dried root looks pretty similar and so if you order this one thing and so there is a lot of interesting histories about how to tell the difference and and why they're called the same thing i couldn't get to the bottom of so anyone in the audience who's who's uh, more versed in traditional Chinese medicine wants to tell me about the history of Hong Chi. be very interesting because I share at least the common Latin name I share with a plant, and now I'm, I'm pretty interested in it, even though I don't think I'll be ingesting any myself. Interesting. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's uh, Stefania, the Stefania genus, named after, well, I'm named after, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Mignon, would you stick around for the final segment, because I, I want to talk to you about a specific grammar-related thing. Yes. Great. Okay, we're back in the final segment of the show, and I, I, you know, I couldn't uh, help but uh, ask you the main grammar-related quandary we've had on the show. And there was an episode a while back where um, uh, my friend Audrey was telling me about pickles, and I decided to go into like the history of the word pickle, and I had this thought, wait a minute, pickle's a weird word, word because you pickle a cucumber and then it becomes a pickle. And so it's literally the exact same word, the noun and the verb without, you know, even the conjugation in that present tense or whatever tense that is, is literally the same word. And so I, I challenged the audience uh, to think of other words like that. And um, people came back with um, roast. If you roast meat, mm-hmm. it becomes a roast. Or um, I think we talked about uh, uh, preserve if you preserve something, it becomes preserves. It's a little different because there's an S in it. And I think there's one more that I'm forgetting. But anyway, I thought that was very interesting. And I was trying to read about what what do you call that? <laughs> what is that kind of word? And I, it's hard to Google stuff about words. It's hard to use words to figure out about words. I, I, so I was very unlucky in, in finding lots of other examples. Like I couldn't find – I had guests tell me examples. Our, our, our friend, uh, friends the show tell me examples. But – I couldn't really Google like a list of them. And anyway, I'm curious, what do you have to say about uh, this kind of word like pickle where the noun is the same as the verb? Yeah, it's really co- it's really common in English to get new words from nouns becoming verbs and verbs becoming nouns. Like um, I always think the example I always think of is microwave, right? So the mm. microwave was invented and then people started talking about the microwave. And then as more and more people used it, they started talking about microwaving food. So that's sort of a classic example of like a new thing is invented. We need a name for it. It gets a name, sticks around for a while as a noun, and then it becomes a verb. You know, so a lot of people like complain about verbification. Like they, they don't <laughs> like verbification. But um, it is actually a very common way that we get new words. And people just don't notice it in a lot of cases. Um, these instances that you brought up are, are more rare. 
I'm I couldn't I also couldn't find a name for that specific type of transformation and and it was interesting because I went to the Oxford English Dictionary and I looked up some of the words you gave me and there there was no pattern so you know pickle was a noun before it was a verb but toast was a verb before it was a noun and <laughs> preserve was a verb before it was noun and then roast like they would became it emerged as a noun and a verb like around the same time like within just a, you know 10 years of each other or something so it wasn't even like it was even different and like some there was a long gap and others it was like really close um so it's just it's just i think they all happened to fall under this just common process um and then i started thinking well are they all about food yes yeah i, I couldn't the only one that came up with that was not perfect that was not about food was sh uh, shipment if you ship something, it becomes a shipment. But, you know, that's not as perfect as that. So all the ones that have that perfect, same, the words are identical, have been food so far. So if you have another one, I'm, I'm super excited. But, I, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. the first one I thought of was another food one. It was bake. And um, what, what really surprised me is, so if you're talking about something like a, a honey mustard chicken bake, like mm. that's, that's the kind of recipe you would see. And to me, that sounds really trendy and jargony. But it, in the Oxford English Dictionary, it actually goes back to the 1400s. Whoa. So they, would, they were talking about bakes. You know, I yeah, like bake, I think about but... the only other one I think is like a clam bake, right? That's a, like, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so bake, but that's another food one. And yeah. So the only two I could find or think of that weren't food were design. So you design something and then you have a design. <laughs> nice, and nice. Print. So sometimes you print something and then you have a, have a print. Print. But I couldn't wow. find any more beyond that. So well, that's it, a big breakthrough. That, that those two are breakthroughs. <laughs> so thank you for finding this. They were so obvious. They're right in front of your our faces. But that's uh, wow. That's good. So yeah, uh, thank you for finding those. Yeah. So I mean, I'll keep an eye out for them. If I see or hear of any more, and I make note of it, I'll I'll message you. I'll let you know. Please do, an audience, if you can think of any more that are not food or food-related. I'm going to collect these. This is now a, a hobby of collecting these words that are the same uh, noun and verb exactly. I mean, we, we should come up with a name for it. If you think of a name for this kind of word, we can coin it, and we'll, like, we'll make it a thing. I was thinking that. We, we <laughs> should just make up a name for it. I don't have anything off the top of my head. But it's, it's, it's so specific. It's not a noun becoming a verb like, mi like, mi uh, like microwave becoming to microwave. It's a verb, so it's a verb becoming, but but it's like the, you produce the verb that is the noun. So, you know, like you had, um, you know, like toast was a yeah. verb, and then you produce toast by toasting. Yes. And that's, it. it's, it, that is not always, when a noun and a verb are the same, that's not how, always how it works. You're not producing the thing that you've done. Yeah, like you can go for a swim, but when you swim, you haven't produced a swim. A swim, yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even with the, even with the microwave, right? Like microwave. Yeah, that one's a weird one because the microwave noun is the actual like physical radio wave, right? And yeah. then you microwave something by applying those waves to it, but you use the microwave to do it, but the food doesn't become a mi microwave, right? Right. W which yeah. it could have. It could have with a toast. You know, you toast something, becomes toast. We very easily, I guess, could have had like, you microwave something, it becomes microwave, but we didn't right, do like that. A bake. Yeah, a yeah. bake. Yeah, a roast. Yeah. Um, but whatever reason, we didn't do that with the word microwave. 
Uh, so fascinating. Anyway, well, well, thank you for uh, for uh, clarifying that. And before we go, uh, word on the street that you've got a book coming out soon. Right. Yeah, I have a tip a day book called The Grammar Daily coming out. And and what? Tell me about that. The tip a day. I, I mean, that's your that's your bag is grammar tips. But like, tell me about this book. What's what's cool about it? Right. One thing. I, so there are lots of things I love about this book. So it's a 365 tips, and there are tips on punctuation and word choice. But it has little cartoons some days oh. to help with memory tricks to help you remember, and cartoons with um, Squiggly and Aardvark, who are two characters that um, come up a lot in the example sentences of my podcast. So um, you know, you get to actually see Squiggly and Aardvark, and um, there are puzzles. So I, I think it's every Sunday or there's a word search puzzle. Um, it's not every Sunday. It's once a month, I think. There's a word search puzzle. You know, so it'll be, um, you know, words that came into English from Latin. And that'll all be um, the word search of those words. And then the next month, it's like all the English words that, all, you know, these 30 English words that came from Greek. And there's a puzzle. And it's just a, a bite-sized fun thing every day that'll teach you something but is also interesting and and fun i hope <laughs> that's super cool well i mean having a plant podcast we talk a lot about words that come into english from greek and, and latin that's very common in the plant world but also i'm just so interested in uh, etym this podcast could almost be an etymology podcast that people who listen know because i really I somehow really like getting into that and i think the names often tell a story about uh about the plant and, and what we decide to call things at certain times is super fascinating. So anyway, I, I really like that. And so uh, I'm very interested in, in in this book you've got and having this little bite-sized tips, particularly the word search part. It seems very fun to me learning about. Yeah, the, the and I think it makes a great gift, you know, totally. for a, a teacher or a writer, an editor friend. I think it's a fun little gift. Wonderful. Um, well, well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for solving uh, a non... Um, non-food related mystery for our our interesting word uh uh situation there i don't know even what to call it we we got to come up with a name uh and uh and yeah thank you for joining me on this episode of rootbound thanks for having me it was a great conversation my guest on this episode of rootbound was mignon fogarty aka the grammar girl you can learn more about Mignon at her website, which is quickanddirtytips.com, and her podcast, which is one of the OG podcasts, which is Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing with Grammar Girl. She also has a book coming out called The Grammar Daily. Check it out. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including just, just telling a friend about it. Rootbound is hosted by someone whose binomial nomenclature is Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Krikaskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, see if you can discover a plant that shares your name. Orchids! Please don't Google their etymology.